Today's scripture reading is from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 12. And that's on page 1154 in your Blue Church Bibles. So 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, verses 1 through 12, page 1154. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or harp, How will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. Please grab uh, your Bibles, and uh, we're in First uh, Corinthians chapter 14. I think Brandy is going to bring us the second half of the reading, which is from uh, verse 13 to verse 25. So I'm going to hand over to you, uh, Brandy, if that's okay, and then we're going to hear God's word together, and then we'll dive in together. Thanks. So, 1 Corinthians 14, uh, 13, 25. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving, since they do not know what you are saying? You are given thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law it is written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. But even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues, then, are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. 
So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Thanks so much, Ricky, or Brandy, sorry, and, th- and thank you for um, logging in. If you're watching at home as well, it's uh, good to have you with us uh, remotely, if not in person. It's great that you're virtually here too. We're going to begin with a little thought experiment, okay? So um, uh, what I'm going to ask you to imagine is that you're in sole charge of Sunday morning services at Highfields. It's all down to you. You hold all the levers of power on our Sunday gatherings, meaning they can be exactly as you would like. You know, what happens, whether what songs get sung, the bands that play the songs and the hymns, the readings, the children's uh, talk, the, the prayers, the sermon length, who is up front, who isn't up front. You, know, you want it, it's in. You don't want it, it's out. All your call. Have Sunday services exactly as you would like them. Imagine, just close your eyes and dream for a second. Church, exactly as you would like. What power you have. Well, you have just imagined the perfect church service for you and clones of you. But it will be far from the perfect church service for many other people. And therefore, it would be far from the perfect church service for God, which is the most important person, of course. Uh, Because our passage uh, this morning says that uh, God uh, commands that whenever we gather together, we're only to do things that are helpful for everyone. When we come to church, it's not to be a case of me, it's a case of us. We're not to be thinking me, we're to be thinking us when we come to church. I don't know whether that's your disposition when you get here. I'm so grateful that you're here. I never know when I come and preach on a Sunday whether there'll be anyone in the room, but there's a whole room of you. Fantastic. Are we thinking me? Are we thinking us? This morning we continue our slow walk through these really important chapters, chapters 12, 13 and 14. And uh, Today, 14, God willing, the rest of chapter 14 um, to conclude the section before into carol services. And chapter 14 is a very, very important chapter in the Bible as we think about how God wants to grow his church. Now, as uh, Ricky prayed about in advance, uh, there's a lot in these verses and uh, there's a lot that we might not have time to get into. I'd love to follow up uh, one-on-one if I can. Please drop me an email if that would be uh, useful afterwards. And as we said a few weeks ago, there are a number of issues in the passage we're looking at today where Bible-believing Christians disagree. And it would be extraordinary if we all agree exactly on the way I'm going to teach this passage this morning, which means we've got to approach it as ever whenever we come to God's will with humility and grace and love, which is the big theme of 1 Corinthians 13. 
Having said that, though, I'm convinced that the big overarching message of 1 Corinthians 14 is relatively straightforward, even though we sometimes get lost in the the trees for the wood. And uh, if we step back and examine the big message of the chapter, I think it will come through quite clearly. And the big message of 1 Corinthians 14 verses 1 to 25, I would suggest, is eagerly desire words which build up the church by speaking intelligibly before a watching world. So if we had a, a test tube and we round 1 Corinthians 14 into the test tube and we distilled it down, down, down into a kind of one sentence, I think something like this would come out. Eagerly desire words which build up the church by speaking intelligibly before a watching world. That's where we're going. Spoiler at the start. So what we're going to do for the next 25 minutes, half an hour or so, is break down that one sentence into four sub-clauses, if you like, and look at them, examine, try to apply them as we go. So here's our first point, eagerly desire, from verse 1. Look down in our Bibles. Well worth having page 1154 open in the church Bibles if you've not got one uh, nearby. We've got a few around the place if you'd like one. I'm sure we could make them make their way to you. So let me read out verse 1. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit. Now at first blush, we might be a bit surprised that Paul begins chapter 14 this way, by encouraging the Corinthians to eagerly desire spiritual gifts. Because, as uh, John said at the start, uh, for the last few weeks, Paul has been correcting the Corinthians' obsession with spiritual gifts. They don't need to be encouraged to want them. He's been saying in chapter 30, don't obsess over those things, because spiritual gifts are passing. It's love that's permanent. That was his big message, chapter 13, verses 8 to 13. Which means it's not what you do or don't do, what gift you have or don't have, that matters really. It's the way that you do it, what's going on underneath the bonnet. It's not your on-stage life that matters, spiritually speaking. Ultimately, it's your off-stage life, the hidden away life, that hidden work that's going on in your heart. Um, That will last for eternity when the gifts and the external stuff fades into the memory. That's what Paul has been saying on his end of the telephone call that we're listening in on and eavesdropping as he talks to the Corinthians. And uh, you can imagine their end of the telephone call, they're thinking, so are you saying, Paul, that if all that really matters is what's going on under the bonnet, the love that we have, that goes on into eternity, gifts are passing, gifts are not ultimate, does spiritual gifts matter at all? Are they irrelevant? You know, what we do doesn't matter at all. Worthless without love, you think. That's what they're thinking that end. Oh no, Paul has no way. That's not the way it is either. And so he gets into chapter 14 and explains what spiritual gifts are about. And uh, he makes it clear, actually, by later on in our chapter, verse 18, if you've got in your Bibles, little number 18, that's the verse number, and the big number is the chapter 14, little number 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. So he's not down on speaking in tongues. In fact, in verse 5 of, of chapter 14, he says, look down again, I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I'd rather have you prophesy. Now, we're going to come on to what speaking tongues and uh, prophecy is all about in a moment. But right at the start, it's worth remembering that Paul is saying it's good to ask God, our Heavenly Father, to spiritually gift you. That's a good thing. That's an okay thing. That's a commendable, laudable thing. To ask God, please give me spiritual gifts. Remember, it was the Lord Jesus himself who said, 
you being evil ask your father, you ask fathers um, to give good gift to their children. Human fathers give good gift to their children. So you can ask your heavenly father to give good gifts to his children when we ask, of course we can. And we're used to asking God to give us material gifts. We pray, give us today our daily bread. I'm sure you're praying that the Lord would provide for your needs over the coming months during the energy crisis that the bills are paid before Christmas, etc., etc. Please provide for us, Lord. It's okay. It's commendable. It's commanded to ask God to give you spiritual gifts. He loves to give gifts. So first point, eagerly desire words which build up the church. And that's the second point. And that, by, by way of introduction, is the big point of the passage. So we'll spend most of our time here. We will get to the rest of it, but that's where we're going to park a long time. And it's really in verses 1 to 5, we'll focus. Paul wants us to desire spiritual gifts that result in spiritual bodybuilding, if you can put it that way. The building up of the body, which is the church. He wants us to build up the body of Christ here. And the way he explains that is by telling us that spiritual gifts are both equal and not equal. They're equal and they're not equal. Let me try and explain what I mean by that. Um, We said a few weeks ago, if we were here for 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that um, every spiritual gift is, is a gift from God, of course. And all God's people have equally been given spiritual gifts. Some have this gift, yes. Some have this gift, that. Some have more gifts, some have less gifts. But every single one of us equally, we've all been given spiritual gifts. No one can say, I don't have a spiritual gift. If you know Jesus Christ, you have the Spirit, he's given you gifts. And he wants you to use that gift. It's a necessary gift. They're all, they're all gift. We've all been gifted and they're all necessary gifts. There's no sense that I don't need your gift. Well, you don't need my gift. No, the eye needs the hand, the hand needs the foot, the foot needs the mouth, etc. We're all part of one body. So there's an equality. Spiritual gifts are equal, but there's also an inequality. Not every spiritual gift is equally valuable before God. And we need to retain that as well when we get to chapter 14. Uh, Before we get into 14, we're going to flick back, though, to chapter uh, 12. Have a look down the last little section of chapter 12, verses 27 to 31. I've put up on the screen, actually, but it's on the Bibles as well. Here, Paul seemingly gives us a hierarchy of gifts. Verse 27. Now, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you equally is a part of it. So if you're a member of Christ, you're a member of his body, you have the spirit, you have gifts. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles. They're the first century authorised, eyewitnessed spokesmen for Jesus Christ. What they said, God said. Most important spiritual gift, it would seem. Second, prophets. Next most important. Third, teachers. Then miracles. Then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have the gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Implication? No, not everyone does all of these things. Now, eagerly desire the greater gifts. So there's an equality and an inequality. Some gifts are greater. And I take it that Paul is meaning the gifts near the start of that list, namely the word gifts. And the reason they're the greater gifts is because they are the gifts that build up the church, which is Paul's great concern in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So if we're back in 1 Corinthians 14, let's uh, jump back there and uh, let me read from verses 1 to 5. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. 
Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, literally builds themselves up. That's what the word edify means, like an edifice. You're built up. But the one who prophesies, edifies, builds up the church. I'd like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be edified, may be built up. You see, that's the big thing, built up, built up, built up, edified, edified, edified. In fact, chapters, uh, uh, chapter 14, verses 1 to 5, really, the whole chapter 14 is a big compare and contrast that Paul is doing between the gift of prophecy and the gift of speaking in tongues. And it's clear to Paul that uh, while speaking in tongues builds up the speaker and edifies you, it's the gift of prophecy that's to be preferred because that builds up the church. That's his big argument. Which leads us, of course, to the million-dollar question, what exactly is prophecy? And what are tongues? And we're going to come on to tongues in a moment, but let's just think about prophecy for a minute. And uh, uh, particularly, you know, the reason is because this seems to be the focus of chapter 14. Not tongues, we'll look at tongues, but the big emphasis is on prophecy. And in order to study that, we need to just do a little step back away from 1 Corinthians 14 and do a bigger whole Bible view of how God speaks to us and how prophecy fits into that. And... Um, from that perspective, it seemed that there are two kinds of prophecy in the Bible. What you might call authoritative prophecy and non-authoritative prophecy. Authoritative capital P prophecy, if you like. Capital P prophecy, that's the, the binding on the hearers. That's if you disobey, you're judged by God. Thus says the Lord, say the prophets. Kind of prophecy. And lowercase, little p prophecy. Not authoritative, not on a par with scripture. Instead to be weighed by scripture alongside the Bible. Let's just kind of work through those in turn very briefly. Capital P prophecy, authoritative prophecy, that would describe the ministry of the Old Testament prophets who wrote three quarters of the Bible, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, etc., etc., etc. It's uh, the capital P authoritative prophecy that I think is in mind in Hebrews chapter 1. I've got a few Bible references on the screen. Here's a Hebrews 1, 1 to 2. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Which immediately makes us think there's a bit of a transition, a bit of a change that occurs as we read through our Bibles. In the Old Testament, the first three quarters of the Bible, God spoke through the prophets. Now he's given us his son. Things are different now. And I think it's a capital P uh, authoritative prophecy that Paul has in mind in Ephesians chapters 2, 3 and 4. And again, I've got some references on the screen for you to follow. So here's Ephesians 2. You are, he's writing to a church, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. It seems that, according to Paul in, in uh, Ephesians 2, that alongside those apostles who are the first century eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ, authoritative um, prophets, uh, apostles, there were prophets as well who were operating at the same kind of time, who also spoke with authority and were involved alongside the prophets on being the foundations on which the church was built. And, 
And uh, so that's, it seems to be that's a kind of capital P prophecy. Likewise in uh, Ephesians chapter 3, the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in earlier generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Again, the implication is that the gospel, that Jews and Gentiles can unitedly worship the same God, have been brought together. That was a secret in the first three quarters of the Bible, but now with the coming of Christ, it has been authoritatively revealed to the apostles and prophets on whom we, as the church today, have been built. That, I think, is also the same point in Ephesians chapter 4, 11 and 12. We don't have time to look at that. So that's one kind of prophecy, what you might call authoritative prophecy. Capital P, thus said the Lord, stick it in the back of your Bible kind of prophecy. And that kind of prophecy is no more. It's done. There's no more of that kind of prophecy. The Book of Mormon is not inspired scripture. We don't stick those extra prophecies at the back of the Bible. That's not authority. And in fact, the last chapter of the book of Revelation makes it crystal clear for us. So Revelation 22, verse 18, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. You see, the Bible's own testimony says it is complete. It's a closed book, if you like. Yes, breathed out by the Spirit of God today, in our day, absolutely. But it's closed. We don't add to it with more inspired writings. We mustn't add to it. We needn't add to it. And uh, we said this last week, that in God's inspired, spirit-inspired word, we have been given everything we need for life and for godliness. So we're to hold to what's called the doctrine of the sufficiency of scripture, which according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So that's the authoritative, capital P kind of prophecy. However... It seems that there's another kind of prophecy at work in the New Testament as well. What we might call little p, non-authoritative prophecy. And I think it's this kind of prophecy that's going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And uh, a couple of places where we we see this kind of prophecy at work in Acts chapter 2, which you don't need to turn to, but there Peter is uh, preaching the gospel on the day of Pentecost and the disciples have wonderfully received the Holy Spirit. And uh, they share the wonders of God and declare how wonderful and amazing God is that he saves people today. And unbelievers can call on the name of the Lord. And that kind of spirit-empowered evangelism, and I've got a reference on the screen. This is um, Peter saying, Joel chapter 2 is coming true in the day of Pentecost. Let me read out. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. And the result of which, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So that kind of spirit-empowered evangelism, Peter sees as a fulfilment of Joel 2, and he calls it prophecy. So that's going on in Acts 2. Also, we sometimes think of prophecy as predicting the future, uh, a bit like Madame Trelawney, for those of you who are Harry Potter fans. And and occasionally, there's a little bit of kind of predicting the future going on in uh, the New Testament as well. So in Acts chapter 11 and Acts chapter 21, there's a guy called Agabus. And uh, we're told in in Acts chapter 11, Agabus stood and he's a prophet and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would happen over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. So occasionally it happens. It's very, very rare in the New Testament, though. And it's certainly never kind of taught as something that we should expect. And in uh, 
Acts chapter 21, verses 10 to 14, he predicts that Paul is going to be bound up by the Jews and, uh, and face opposition. But Paul ignores it and says, you know, I'm still going to go ahead with it. So he doesn't kind of take that word as the last word. He says, yeah, thanks, Agabus, but no, I'm going to carry on. So you've got kind of evangelism prophecy, you've got um, this kind of foretelling prophecy, but they, they don't seem to be the norm. In 1 Corinthians 14, it seems less on predicting the future with Agabus, less on evangelising the world, there's a bit of that, as in Pentecost. I think rather in 1 Corinthians 14, if you've got your Bibles, I mean, let's, let's look at what the passage says. In the passage, in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 14, it says, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. In other words, the effect of prophecy is the building up of the church. That seems to be what Paul means by prophecy here. How does it happen? Well, that, I guess, is the big debating point amongst Christians. And uh, the honest fact is it's not entirely clear how it happens because we really only have 1 Corinthians 14 to go on with a couple of other references elsewhere. But this is all we've got. What can we say for definite? And then I'm going to make a few kind of applications. I think a few definites we can say is that it's something that both men and women can do. And uh, that becomes clear as we flick back a page to chapter 11, verses 4 and 5 uh, of 1 Corinthians. So if you've got your Bibles open, flick back a page. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 11, 4 and 5, we looked at this before the summer. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head so okay the issue there is to do with honour and dishonour but there's no question that men and women can pray and prophesy in the gathering that is the assumption so men and women can do it it's also worth saying by way of kind of clarity that we need to be clear that new testament prophecy is always to be submitted to scripture always and uh, if you've got your Bibles open again, 1 Corinthians 14, you flick towards the end of that. 14 uh, verse 29, we read, two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And a similar point is made at the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, which talks about testing everything and rejecting the evil. 1 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21, if you're taking notes. Um, but that means, I suppose, if we're kind of weighing stuff up and holding it alongside scripture, that means that the idea that spontaneity is a mark of authenticity, is probably not a helpful idea. The idea that just because you know, something has come on someone suddenly means that we need to take it seriously. I think it's true that the New Testament would, would urge us to remember that the Holy Spirit works as much through the thoughtful, prayerful, Bible-shaped and soaked contribution that someone may make as he does in any kind of heat-of-the-moment um, situation. And it also, I think, goes without saying that the language of God has told me, dot, 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 is, again, not a helpful way of speaking. Because what do you do with it? How do you weigh God has told me, dot, dot, dot? That kind of closes the conversation, doesn't it? As I've been reflecting on, uh, on what prophecy is and isn't, I think I've come to the conclusion that I think very possibly a lot of prophecy or prophetic insight is going on within our church family here at Highfields already under another name. Honestly, I think it's going on already. Um, helpful uh, reflection, Graham Byne and Jane Tua in a recent book have said that contemporary prophecy is a testimony, an application, or a response to God's word, which I think is quite a nice uh, way of putting it. Uh, We could equally uh, define prophecy as spirit-led utterances of word-centred truth. Spirit-led utterances of word-centred truth. So there's a clear Bible-centredness, sufficiency of scripture, but it's, it's led by the spirit, and he kind of lays different things on our hearts at different times. 
I certainly don't want to equate it and say it is preaching. Some people in the previous generation have said that. I don't think that's the case. Though I do think preaching can and should have a prophetic edge to it, and often does. I don't know if you've ever heard a sermon where you think, come on, someone's tipped the preacher off. And maybe you think, has, 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 my, uh, has my husband been talking to John Rees? Because he's saying exactly what we need to hear. Or you think, How, who told you? Who told No one told us. We, you know, the Holy Spirit has directed us and we're saying things that we feel the Lord has laid on our heart to share from the word. Um, and sometimes that can be our experience when we hear, hear God's word preached. It happens individually. It can happen corporately as God's spirit leads and directs us. Um, I've shared this before a few weeks ago, but on the first Sunday of COVID, uh, back two and a half years ago, not the first Sunday of Advent, first Sunday of COVID, uh, months before we planned our sermon series. And I had planned to preach through Mark's gospel. And the Sunday, I think it was the 15th of March, the first Sunday of of COVID, the title of the sermon was planned on the term card as The End of the World is Nigh. I mean, forget it, like, that was in the, like, you can see the cards. We've got it all. And God had led us to look at the topic on Mark 13 and being ready for Christ's return and the chaos that's going to unfold in our world. Like, I didn't know that, but I'm sure the, the, the Holy Spirit prophetically nudged me in the, in the, 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 the teach of God's word. I guess it can happen in small groups. And uh, maybe we've been in a situation where someone has said, I, I really think God is challenging us as a church to, to reach out more, to pray more. Or I feel really burdened to, to encourage you to, to give sacrificially. And I don't know where you're at, but I think maybe that's something that he wants to do in us. Uh, maybe a conversation over coffee or a one-to-one. It may be that you know, the Lord in his sovereignty, because he's sovereign, and he can kind of put things on our hearts and nudge us in different kinds of ways. Maybe he conspires to, to make a whole lot of things line up su- such that you know, we decide to do a church plant, which no one had planned. But suddenly everything is lined up and we're going to do a church plant or we're going to appoint a new member of staff. And the Lord can sovereignly do that and does do that. And I guess the last comment on, on, on prophecy before we move on is... We, we probably need to bear in mind that 1 Corinthians 14 is an important chapter, but it's just one chapter in the whole of the New Testament. And uh, the fact is, as uh, Paul is planning to hand on uh, the gospel message to the next generation as he's about to die out, and he's particularly equipping the young uh, preachers and leaders, Titus and Timothy, in his pastoral letters, he actually doesn't talk about prophecy. He talks about preaching the word and holding on to the apostolic truth and the, and the teachings that we've passed on to you to pass on to others. So yes, prophecy is important, but let's not treat it as the most important ultimate thing in the life of a church. Well, we've heard Paul say so far, eagerly desire words that build up the church by speaking intelligibly. And that's our next section. I realise time is racing away, so we really need to go quick at this point. And uh, remember, the, the, the point of the chapter, I think, is to say that prophecy is to be preferred over tongues, because while the person speaking in tongues builds themselves up, prophecy builds up the whole church. Let's read the words, verse 6. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You'll just be speaking to the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. 
if then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. And then verse 12, which I think is a very good summary of the whole chapter. Since you are so eager for gift of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. Remember that illustration we began with, that thought experiment, DIY church? You can have it as you want. The music exactly to your personal tastes. The bands, the hymns, the teaching, the speakers, the sermon length. That's me thinking. That's not us thinking. And Paul wants us to do us thinking, not me thinking. Remember that the particular obsession in the church in Corinth is speaking in tongues. And it may be that you've grown up in an environment where that was an obsession. Um, I certainly remember you know, when I was a young Christian, people said to me, Look, Dave, if you've not spoken in tongues, I'm not sure you're really a Christian. And we've, I've heard on many occasions people counted in a similar kind of way. And it's had massively detrimental effect on their spiritual lives. You know, if, you, if you're not speaking in tongues, maybe you don't have the spirit. That is rubbish. That is false teaching. I, I want to disavow that kind of thinking. And if you've heard that, please don't believe it. That is not in the Bible. Don't think, if you can't speak in tongues, you're not a proper Christian. I can't speak in tongues you know, myself. We, we said a few weeks ago, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the litmus test of whether you have the Holy Spirit, whether you're gifted spiritually, you, you know God, is whether you can say and mean Jesus Lord. And if you can say and mean that Jesus is Lord, you've got the Spirit. Congratulations. You're part of the family. It's nothing to do with whether you can speak in tongues or not. And yet this passage is talking about speaking in tongues. It's talking about Paul who enjoys the fact that he speaks in tongues and wants other people to do so as well. So what is speaking in tongues? Well, we're going to try and explore this just very, very briefly. Simply to say this is only one of two places in the whole of the Bible that talks about speaking in tongues. 1 Corinthians 14 and Acts chapter 2, which we've already referred to on the day of Pentecost. And uh, the word tongues here in 1 Corinthians 14 is a word that's translated in 1 Corinthians, uh, sorry, in Acts 2 as languages. Languages, tongues, the Greek word is glossa. And uh, it's just two chapters in the whole of the Bible to try and work this out. So it's like someone saying, hey, I've got a jigsaw for you. And they give you two pieces and they say, come on, what's the picture on the front? I'm like, I don't know, that's, that's not much to work on. We're going to try and work on what tongues is on two jigsaw pieces worth, okay? Well, in Acts chapter 2, the word glossa, I think, means foreign languages. That's what it's meaning. You know, in uh, Pentecost, the world has gathered together in Jerusalem and uh, from all over the known world, and the Holy Spirit comes on the disciples and they speak in different glossa, different languages, so that people understand the ones of God in their own tongue. And they therefore call the name of the Lord and are saved and 3,000 are added to their number. That's what's going on then. That might be going on in 1 Corinthians 14. And some people think that. Maybe you think that's going on here. I think my hunch is that Paul is using glossa in a slightly different way to refer to spiritual languages. Now, that's not definite, but that's my best guess. And I get that really from uh, chapter 13, verse 1, where Paul talks about speaking the tongues of men and of angels, which sounds a bit different from uh, uh, the kind of foreign languages point. And uh, in verse 2 of chapter 14, if you've got your Bibles open, anyone who speaks the tongue does not speak to people, but to God. That, for me, seems like it's kind of a, a spiritual language rather than a foreign language which you're just trying to share with someone else. Anyway, let's just jump down to verse 13 and see how Paul explains. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? 
I'll pray with my spirit, but I'll also pray with my understanding. I'll sing with my spirit, but I'll also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you're praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving, since they do not know what you're saying? You are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified, built up. See the big theme coming through again and again. So unless they're interpreted, which can happen, Paul says tongues are best exercised privately, whether that's on your own or in the context of the gathering in a, as a private act of spiritual devotion to the Lord. Here's the theologian Tom Wright. The gift of speech, which though making sounds and using apparent or even actual languages, somehow bypasses the speaker's conscious mind. Such speech is experienced as a stream of praise in which Though the speaker may not be able to articulate what precisely is being said, a sense of love of God, of adoration and gratitude, wells up and overflows. It's like a private language of love. Maybe that's what's going on in in Romans chapter 8, where where the Spirit is mouthing wordless groaning to the Father as we uh, pray in difficult times as well as joyful times too. But, according to 1 Corinthians 14, tongues and speaking in tongues is not The priority. Have a look down in verse 18 of chapter 14. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Zooming out from this specific instance, and our time has virtually gone, we just need to think about that issue of intelligibility. Eagerly seek gifts that enable the church to be built up intelligibly. And I I think there's a lesson for us all there in that respect. It's possible to come to church, possible to lead a Bible study, talk to someone else about Jesus, and it's totally nonsensical. You're just using words and jargon that makes no attempt to connect with the person who you're speaking with. I love uh, Charles Spurgeon, here's the, the, the Victorian preacher, here's what he said. Be sure to speak plainly, because however excellent your matter, if a man does not comprehend it, it can be of no use to him. You might as well have spoken to him in the language of Kamchatka as in your own tongue if you use phrases that are quite out of his line and modes of expression which are not suitable to his mind. And then I love his next uh, paragraph. Go up to his level if he is a poor man. Go down to his understanding if he is an educated person. You smile at my contorting the terms in that manner, but I think there is more going up in being plain to the illiterate than there is in being refined for the polite. I think he's absolutely right. Sometimes trying to explain big concepts as clearly as you can takes a lot of effort, but we need to try and do our absolute best because what are we trying to do? We're trying to use gifts, speaking words that build up the church intelligibly as God's people grow before a watching world. And that's the last point, but our time really has gone. This is basically the point from verses 20 to 25. And uh, because our time has gone, I'm going to lead us to next week where we can dig into it. But as a little trailer for what we'll see next time, Paul wants our speech to be intelligible. He wants (coughs) words that build up the church, yes. But he doesn't want to just build up the church. He wants to build out the church. And he's very concerned that everything we say and everything we do makes sense, yes, for us but for our friends who are visiting, so they can see us and say to themselves, my goodness me, God is amongst you. I want to get in on that. But that's all for next time. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. And as as we bow our heads and have a moment of quietness, I want you to reflect on that opening question. Do you see church as a me or an us? 
You come to church thinking about your concerns, your priorities, your interests, your worship style, your sermon style. Or what would bless others? And maybe in the quietness you need to say to the Lord, please show me how I can come to church differently in a way that builds others up, not just myself. And maybe the Lord can put his finger on different ways that you could come to church, people you could speak to, postures you could have, attitudes that would build others up that Christ would be praised. Let's have a moment of quietness and then I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for your spirit, the author of your words, here with us now, guiding us, teaching us, rebuking us, correcting us. We pray, please, would we be those who eagerly desire words which build up your church. Please give us words to say that would build others up. Place on our hearts things that would encourage and comfort and challenge and strengthen as your word gets to work by your spirit in our hearts and in our minds. Please lead us. Help us to to contribute and to share and to bless. Help us to use words that make sense, that others would know of you and that your church, as well as being built up, would be built out. We long this Christmas season that many would understand the beauty of knowing Christ. Help us to speak in such a way that they would understand. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.